We're going to do three psalms of David tonight, and uh, the psalms are Psalm 37, 38, and 39, but we're going to start in 38, and then we'll do 39, and then we're going to go back to 37 at the end. I think it'll make sense to you why I'm choosing to do that. So Psalm 38 is where we begin, and to this day, it's interesting to note that Psalm 38 is read especially among Orthodox Jews, on that most solemn and significant day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. I don't know what it would be like to be a Jew today and to try to celebrate the Day of Atonement. How would you do that? Back in the days of the Temple, in the days of the altar and the Ark of the Covenant, where the high priest would go in and make that sacrifice... That all-important sacrifice, which was the covering of all sin of all the people of Israel for all the previous year. A complete cleansing as God would recognize it. And he goes in and he makes that sacrifice of the lamb and then sprinkles the blood of the lamb seven times. And there's no altar anymore. And there's no ark for the Jewish people to sprinkle the blood on. So what do they do? Well, in the run-up to the days of Yom, or the day of Yom Kippur, they call them the awesome days. That time from Rosh Hashanah up to Yom Kippur, ten days are spent in reflection and in consideration of wrongdoing in an attempt during that time, the awesome days, to make things right, to to do a good deed, to do acts of kindness. Tragically, that's what the rabbis will tell you today is the way to atone for sins, the way to approach the Day of Atonement is to try to make up for them by doing kind things and good works. And it misses the point that the original Day of Atonement was because the people couldn't do enough good works. They had to have the blood of a lamb. And you know and I know that that blood was shed by Jesus on the cross. That ultimate, not just atonement, but propitiation. Wiping clean washing of all of our sins. But these days, Psalm 38 is continually read on the Day of Atonement because it is a penitential psalm. And this is the third one. We do know that. We've seen two of them before. This is now the third penitential psalm, or songs of repentance. But why is this particular psalm read on Yom Kippur? What's the focus of this psalm? Well, if you look in the heading of Psalm 38, it says a psalm of David for a memorial. It's a repentance psalm, but it's a psalm for memorial. David, in this psalm, comes confessing a grievous sin to the Lord. You'll see how grievous He doesn't hide anything. You want to know what David's life was like? Man, read the Psalms. He tells it all. He's not ashamed. He's not afraid to. Why? Because he wants it clean before the Father. He doesn't want to hide anything. David is not a sower of fig leaves. But he's a man who stands naked and honest before the Lord and says, this is who I am. Cleanse me. Make me right. It's interesting. Most of us would rather forget our sin. And and some would prefer to ignore, or worse, people try to bury their sin, but David wants to remember. He writes Psalm 38 for a memorial, so that he personally can go back and look at this psalm, read this, sing this song, and remember this horrible sin, and remember the suffering that it caused him, and remember the salvation that came after his confession. So Psalm 38, it divides easily into three distinct sections. The first section is the first nine verses. Let's read those. Psalm 38, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. Chasten me not in your burning anger. 
For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. By the way, there's a difference between David and Job here. Job had no soundness in his bones. He had uh, no, no health. And, and, and he was sick and he was dying. And he kept saying, But I'm righteous! David says, I'm sick, possibly dying. And he said, And I'm a sinner. And that's what's going on here. It's because of my sin. Verse 4, For my iniquities, they're gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning. I told you, he just puts it all out there. And there's no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. David honestly and explicitly points out something our world disregards, and that's this. First section, you can title it this way, Sin Makes Me Sick. Sin Makes Me Sick. I'm not talking about the sin of others or the wickedness of the world. I'm talking about my sin makes me sick. Sick in the Spirit with shame and remorse when I recognize what I've done. Sick in my soul with guilt and fear over how this sin is going to play out. Sick even in the body where the ramifications of sin are often most visibly seen. Sin makes me sick. God knows this. God has been telling us this for generations. Since the very beginning, God has been making it clear and trying to help man understand, look, if you sin, it will make you sick. Ultimately, if you sin, it's going to kill you. Don't choose sin. Choose righteousness. Because if you choose sin, I guarantee you, it will make you sick. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord is speaking to Israel, but remember, Paul says all these things happened to them for an example for us. So that we would learn from what went on in those days. Isaiah is writing, God is speaking, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. That would be the soul, wouldn't it? The whole heart is faint. That would be the spirit. And from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, the flesh. Only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Listen, sin is not just a religious word that people use for a guilt trip. You know? I mean, that's the way I believe the world really looks at it. It's just a word that people throw out when they want to be judgmental. It's not just a word. Sin is the leading cause of death in the world. Romans 5.12, Paul said, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Because of Adam? No. Because all sinned. Oh yeah, Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world as they committed it. They introduced death through their sin. But we die not because they sin, but because we sin. And death remains in the world because man sins. Now, 
Because of the graphic language in verse 7, which says, My loins are filled with burning, some scholars believe David was actually suffering from a venereal disease. Which would have been very likely. Very possible in that time. The Center for Disease Control reported in 2008 that the number of cases of chlamydia was 1.2 million in the United States. It was listed as the largest single year reporting of any medical condition in history, at least of the CDC. And it was on the rise from there. It was worse from that point forward. Another statistic for you, um, top10reviews.com is reviewing several of the net services, Net Nanny and SafeEyes and some of the others that, that you can get. And parents, if you don't have it on your computers at home, you need to. Oh, my kids wouldn't look at that stuff. If you don't have it on your computers at home, you need to. Period. Don't think that the temptation's not there. Well, why would you say that? Every second, $3,075.64 is spent on pornography. Every second. The porn industry boasts larger revenues, this will blow your mind, larger revenues in pornography today than Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix combined. More money goes to pornography. And pornography is no longer a male-dominated, male-focused problem. In a 2006 Today's Christian Women magazine survey, 34% of respondents admitted to being addicted to Internet pornography. Women. And those were who admitted it. And not just admitted looking at pornography, but admitted an addiction to it. 2010 statistics of the number of women addicted to pornography is now equal to the number of women addicted to drugs and alcohol. It's exactly the same. And it has this this stranglehold on our culture. Sin makes us sick. David says in verse 10, second section here, he says, My heart throbs, my strength fails me, And the light of my eyes, even that, has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. And my kinsmen stand afar off. Yeah, he has an STD either. They're like, (laughs) Those who seek my life lay snares for me. And those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I'm like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no arguments. All my friends, my family, those who cared about me before, they're not even coming around me and I have nothing to say about it because you know what? This is what I get. Not only does sin make me sick, but number two, sin shuts me off. My sin shuts me off. David says from other people, from people close to me. Have you ever done that in your life? You're struggling with some type of sin and you become a little more aloof to those around you because, you know, you got this going on. And you don't want people to know. And so I'm not going to hang out with them because they know me too well. They'll look in my eyes, they'll see. Like David said, the light is gone from my eyes. Boy, that's a graphic description of how when we're hiding something or burying something, there's just, you know, we don't even want to look people in the eye. But, but it's more than being shut off from other people. Jesus said in Matthew thirteen fifteen, He says, The heart of this people has become dull. 
And with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. But man, when we're in the struggle of sin, we're not even looking at Jesus because of the shame. It makes me sick. It shuts me off. And my sin brings me down. Verse 15. David says, For I hope in You, O Lord... You will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, may they not rejoice over me. That is the fault finders who are always looking for a way to get David. Who, when my foot slips, would magnify themselves against me. David says, for I am ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me. You might note this. The word fall there is actually halt. I'm ready to halt and my sorrow is continually before me. I'm just, I'm done. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the end of myself. I'm at the bottom of the barrel. I am ready to halt, to stop. Because my sin is just constantly before me. I can't think of anything else. My sin brings me down. Brings me down to the place I need to be. That I might return to the Lord. Paul wrote this in Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Why? Did God give them over because He just gave up on them? It's talking about humanity. Does God look at humanity and go, that's it, I'm done. Now you see, when God is done, He floods the world. (laughs) When He gives someone over to their own sin, it is for a purpose. It's for a reason. That God allows our sin to run its course in us until we're ready to halt. Until we're ready to stop running. Until we're so sick of it and so shut off and so brought down that we finally say, I'm done! I am done, Lord! I've had, I can't do this anymore. I can't hide it. I can't walk in it. I, I'm, I'm lost. My sorrow is constant. You know, ironically, being immediately rescued from temptation and sinful situations, sometimes that's not the best thing for us. Sometimes the best thing is when sin does run its course and it brings us to the end of ourselves. One of the hardest places that is to live out and play out is in parenting. And especially if you have been, if you're a parent of adult children who have made stupid decisions and all you want to do is rescue. You just want to, you know, like, well, let's get them out of, you know, out of that place or let's pay the extra money to make this, just cover this, just make it go away. And sometimes that, well, I'm not even going to say sometimes, that is the, the wrong thing to do. We need to come to the end of ourselves. We need to, as the Lord did with us, the Lord gave us over. He said, all right, you want to sin? Sin. Why? Because we'll experience how sickening it is. And because we finally get to that point, alone, sickened by it, brought down, and then when sin runs its course and the Father says, are you ready? We say, yes! i got nothing to hide! I got nowhere to run. I have nowhere else to turn but to you, Father. Because for all the sickness of sin, there is sweetness in confession. And for all the ugliness of sin, there is a beauty in repentance. For all the isolation of sin, there's a Father's embrace when we turn to Him. David says in verse 18, For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and strong, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. 
And those who repay evil for good, they oppose me because I follow what is good. Wait a minute. (laughs) David, your loins are burning, dude. And now you say you're following what is good? Yeah, absolutely. David says, I'm a sinner. I messed up because of it. But I am following what is good. I am bringing my sin to the one place that I need to bring it, and that's to the Lord. The right place. Do not forsake me, O Lord. Oh my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And that's what David most wants to remember. That's great. David writes a psalm of memorial where he describes the awful situation of his sin, he describes his confession, and he describes the cry for salvation. That he might go back to it again and again, perhaps when he's tempted another time. Not a bad idea. Print out Psalm 38, put it on your bathroom mirror, and when you're about to head out the house knowing you're headed to do something you shouldn't do, read the psalm. And be reminded, oh, oh, yeah, that's what this will do. That's the heart of David here. Now, Psalm 39 continues in the same vein of Psalm 38. The heading says, For the choir director for Yejitun, a psalm of David. Uh, Yejitun, that name, it's actually a name. It means praising. So you could read it that way. It's for the choir director for praising the psalm of David. Or you could read it as the name Yejitun, who we discover back in 1 Chronicles 16, was also the name of one of David's Levitical worship leaders. And so that's what I believe is going on. It's, it's a psalm that he wrote to be handed over to this worship leader because he wanted the Levites to sing this in worship. He wanted all Israel to hear this song and to sing it. Psalm 39, verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. While the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. People are apparently judging David in his sin, big time. Word is out, everybody knows, and everybody's talking. Did you hear what David did? You know what he's up to? You know that he's sick from it? Oh, that's terrible. He's supposed to be our king. What kind of a king is he? And all this slander is going on, and he's being judged. And you probably have experienced this slander on top of sin and failure is just brutal. You know, you feel bad enough when you're messed up in your sin choices and then people start talking about it. It's like, oh man, I gotta have that too? What do you do? What do you do when you've failed, when you've sinned, especially openly? People know and they begin to whisper about it and talk about it. David decides, he said, I'm going to hold my tongue. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to challenge my accusers. I'm not even going to return good for bad. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to shut up. And so David does this, but it is painful. It's painful. He describes this. I was mute. I was silent. My sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. I call this, number one, the burning of restraint. When you try to hold back, you try not to say what you want to say. You try not to be self-defensive. You know, you don't. You avoid picking up the phone because, man, I know if I say to this person what I want to say, it's not going to go well. You avoid shooting off that email that your fingers are just itching to type out. You know, you refuse to confront your accuser face to face. You just hold it back. You think it's the right thing to do. Well, I'm going to hold this back, and it starts to burn. You start to get angry, 
and bitterness begins to boil. It's like heartburn. And it doesn't taste good and it's not a good place to be. Well, listen, silence is not the cure. Even if it's not a sin situation, if people are slandering and accusing you and it's going on all around you, silence is not the cure. Okay, but if I lash out, I'm just going to make things worse, right? So what do I do? Silence is not the cure and lashing out is not the cure when you've got the burning of restraint. Instead, let it go. Let it go where? Verse 3 continuing, Then I spoke with my tongue, Lord. Now we're on the right path. They're talking about me. I don't need to talk to them about it. I need to talk to Him about it. You know, you can tell God anything. I mean, anything. You know, you can tell God, I really think that person's a total jerk. I'm sick and tired of their behavior. That guy's an idiot. You can tell this to God. You're not slandering him. You're talking to God because He knows the guy's an idiot. Or knows that you are and you're spouting off. Take it to the Lord. Go to the Father. He takes it to the Lord here. He, he says, Lord, make me know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. But surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Selah. <laughs> he takes a breath. Verse 6, he says, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. The word phantom there, it's literally as an image. That's all we are, really. Just kind of an image. As a resemblance. Surely they make an uproar, I am man, for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. So here comes David out of the burning of restraint and he's now into the bringing of despondency. He's bummed and he's depressed. It's kind of that, you know, Lord, how long do I have to live? Can I just die now? You know, let me know the extent of how many more days do I have to put up with this? It's David's way of saying, I can't handle this. You guys know something of the saga of my son Hayden being in Colorado and flying standby to get there. And he got on the flight, and I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. Well, he was supposed to come home Monday, got to the airport, crack a dawn, waited for the flight, didn't get on. And all week it looks bad. So we ended up using some flight miles, and we're going to bring him home on Saturday. But he wanted to come home on Monday. And his words, I can't handle it. Cheryl said, what are you going to do, explode? (laughs) you got to wait until Saturday. I'm sorry, we love you. And he's having a great time, by the way. But that's the thing, we say that sometimes, don't we? I can't take this anymore. What are you going to do? Pop? You know? Your arm going to drop off? See, I told you I couldn't take it. I can't handle this. That's where David is. He says, Father, I'm wiped out. I'm like a phantom. I'm like an image. I'm a representation of what's real. Which is actually really good insight. Because <laughs> that's what we are. We are phantoms of what is real. This physical life that we're walking in, these bodies, are phantoms. The real you is the unseen you. The real you is the spirit. Just like God is spirit. Praise God, we're made in His image. We have a spirit but it's, it's not real. It's not as real as it's going to be. Not when we get there. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.31, the form of this world is just passing away. 
James said in James 4.14, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You're gas. That's all you are. We are transient beings. David says this. And the body is not the form that will last. It's a mere representation. But at this point, David, you know, he's got that burning restraint, so he brings it to the Lord, but he's bummed out, he's despondent, and now all of a sudden we see, as he's turned to the Lord, he's venting to the Lord, right thing to do, we start to see the beginning of hopefulness. Verse 7. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. That's such a good place to be. My hope is is in you. And by the way, remember, he wrote this to give to Yedutun for the worship team to lead all of Israel in singing. Why? Because David was wise to have all of Israel sing these words, Lord, what do I, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. My hope is in you. My hope is in you. Verse 8, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I've become mute. I, I don't open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Which is David's full acceptance of God's will. I'm in the place I am because when I sinned against you, I deserve to be in this place. I have nothing to say about it, so I'm coming to you. And he says in verse 10, Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. And then he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry, and do not be silent at my tears, for I'm a stranger. With you, I'm a sojourner like all my fathers. I love that David says this. I've got my palace. I've got my kingdom. I've got Jerusalem laid out before me. And you know what? I'm a sojourner. I am... It takes... David's sin recognition, his pain, his anguish, and coming back to the Lord for him to remember it's not about this world anyway. I am just a sojourner. You know, rabbis say that tears, tears are the supreme expression of sincerity before the Lord. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to cry it out. And Look at the, what I would call the progression of confession here in verse 12. My prayer, my cry, my tears. My prayer, my cry, my tears. He comes praying to the Lord. It becomes a cry before the Lord. And then he's weeping. Tears are the supreme expression of sincerity before the Lord. The rabbis are right. Because confession must be felt. Confession is not, again, the spouting off of words. It's not going and sitting in a little box and telling another man, what's what I've done? What's my penance? That's not confession. Confession should cause our eyes to burn with tears in the recognition of what we've done as we're bringing this before the Lord. It should be an emotional thing. My prayer, my cry, my tears. Psalm 80, verse 4. says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You see, that's the way the people were praying. Like in a confessional. Spouting words. Now, by the way, I'm not, I don't even want to sound like I'm in judgment of someone going into a confessional. People do weep there. That would be a confession that would be heard by the Lord. But those who just go before the Lord and toss words out there, that's what Israel was doing. 
How long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? But listen to this, Psalm 80 verse 5. You have fed them with the bread of tears. And you have made them drink tears in large measure. Why would God do this? Because He knows confession felt is true confession. I have done this as a dad. Some of you may think I'm brutal. But I have spanked my kids. And when they look at me like, I'm not going to break, I spank them again. Not every time, you know. Not every time I have to do this with Corey. (laughs) Or Hannah. But I purposefully would do that in disciplining the kids when they were little. I purposefully do that. Why? Well, you parents know. You've got to get them to the breaking point. You've got to get them to that point where, where they get into the emotion of what's going on. And when they do, everything, everything can be healed then. Then the hugs can come and the talk and the discussion about what went wrong and, why, and all that. But when they're, you know, rebellious, well, I confess, yes, I did wrong, so... So confession felt is true confession. And John writes in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 13, David in Psalm 39, Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So it's kind of a final shot of despair here. <laughs> And he's saying, you know, just you're looking at me, Lord, and I feel so bad about what's going on. And I bring you my tears. Confession felt is true confession. David would say in Psalm 51.12, in a similar way, he would say, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me that joy. Well, Psalm 38 and 39 complete this confession of David. This recognition of his sin and the progression of his confession to the Lord. We're going to go back to Psalm 37 now, but as we do that, I want you to think about something in David's life. I think what is so attractive about him as as an example for us as believers is that David is so real. He's just a real guy. He was involved in some marvelous things, the killing of Goliath. Wow! He's written some incredible music. And he did rise from a young man anointed all the way ten years later to king over Israel and then uniting the entire kingdom. And he won victoriously and he was an amazing leader. But think about David's life. It was not a charmed life. It wasn't the perfect life. I don't know anyone who would say, boy, I just wish I could live David's life. Uh Uh-uh. He dealt with the sickness of sin. It was as ugly as anyone's. David dealt with strained relationships. Just think through his life about the relationships that went bad. Jonathan didn't go bad, but he lost his best friend. And they were they were like blood brothers. They loved each other, and because Jonathan was Saul's son, they had to part ways, and that friendship was lost. And then you've got Saul. Well, wasn't Saul David's enemy? Yeah, but Saul was also like a father to David. And there was a special relationship there when David served in Saul's courts and they played tennis together. (laughs) They had a good relationship that went bad. So Jonathan, Saul, Michael, his wife, that relationship went bad to the point where 
David said, I'm done, or Michael said, I'm done, or the Lord said, I'm done, but the two of them would no longer, after the whole Ark of the Covenant incident, that was shot. Ahithophel was one of David's most trusted counselors, betrayed him. Absalom, his own son. I mean, that's just, that's just five that we know of. How many people in your life have you had that bad of a situation with? We've had a few things go wrong. I've had some relationships get wounded and have to be fixed over time and through prayer, but that's just five that we know about. David's life was not a charmed life. We know about David's sin. He's so obvious with that. He also had to deal with the sting of wickedness. David did not live a charmed life. And yet, through all his life, and at the final culmination of all things, through all his transgressions and troubles, David remained a man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 37, we discover how. Psalm 37, he wrote late in life, possibly as an encouragement for his son Solomon, who would soon take the throne. We know this, if you look down in verse 25, he says, I have been young, and now I am old. So David is writing this as an older man, and it's important to recognize that. His older age, because he writes with the wisdom of the years. David, in this psalm, as he writes, is a mature saint. He's experienced with the pain of his own sin and that of others, the persecutions of slander, and greater than that, David is experienced with the providence of a saving God. And so in his old age, David deals with an age-old issue. How do I, listen, how do I, a sinner and fully capable of sin myself, live in a world that elevates wickedness over righteousness? How do we do that? I mean, hold on just for a minute before we get to Psalm 37. How do we live in a sinful world? I mean, some just choose to be judgmental of of all wickedness out there, and yet, I'm wicked. I've got sin issues. So, that's not really a good choice. What do I do? How do I live? How do I deal with all this? Revelation 14.12 says, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The very use of the word perseverance indicates it's not going to be easy. To walk trying to be righteous, though we have a sin nature, in a world that shuns righteousness in favor of wickedness. It will require perseverance. I was uh, so excited to get my summer edition of Wood and Steel magazine. <laughs> Taylor Guitars send these out you know, quarterly and, and they always show the newest guitars and I just sit there and drool and read and look at them. And, and I pick this up and oh, they've got a new one. It's called the GS Mini. Cheryl, I want one. But it's a new guitar that's on the cover and I'm reading through. I think this is awesome. And then I get back to the back page, what they call soundings, and it's different artists who play Taylor guitars and where they're playing and how they play them and what guitar choices they have. And I know you're all really bored with this, but I love it. And I'm reading about this, and I see there Jennifer Knapp. Jennifer Knapp has a new album coming out. Jennifer Knapp, who is one of the biggest-selling Christian artists in the end of the 90s and beginning, you know, 2000, right around 2002, she walked away from it. She was burned out, exhausted, tired, and she just said, I'm done. And she quit. And then she traveled the world for like five years, five to seven years, I guess, eventually ended up in Australia and settled there. 
And now finally she's coming out with a new album. I'm reading this and going, yeah, cool. I'm going to go pick that up. And I'm reading a little further along. And she's also coming out. She's just decided this in the last few years. Still a Christian. I mean, still professing her faith in Christ, but, but I'm gay now. This is just my, my you know, sexual orientation, but I'm still a believer. I was so bummed. I was disappointed. I was disappointed for her. But I'm also disappointed because just as a pastor, I think about the church. I think about our church. I think about the church. And I thought, what is this going to do? And there's already, you can go online and Google Jennifer Knapp and the debate is flying. And it just bums me out. And I read that article, I put down the magazine, and I've already had a long conversation with Cheryl. I have one with Hannah at dinner tonight. I talked to Corey about it. You know, I've got to talk to people because I just, I'm trying to work this out. I'm going, what is happening today? What is going on when even in the church, clear biblical lines of righteousness are being blurred and grayed and distorted in the name of love and tolerance? We just got to tolerate I wouldn't choose that for me, but for her, it's okay. Hey, you know what? Homosexuality today is the new divorce. We all know 40 years ago in the church, divorce was a very shunned thing. And we all got to where we accepted and understood that, and and there's forgiveness there and all that. So now now it's homosexuality. Well, that's just what we deal with in this culture. And this hasn't changed. The lines of righteousness are clear. And I I said, Cheryl, am I just an intolerant, out-of-touch religious bigot? Because my heart just breaks, you know. I read this stuff and I see this, and my, my immediate reaction is I'm not, I can't, not only can I not buy her albums, I don't even think I can listen to the other three that I've got. The thing I loved about her music is it is so raw and honest. It reads like David. I don't think I can listen to it. Am I just a bigot? I believe. In the biblical call to love all people. I absolutely believe that. I accept that we are all sinners. And that we've all fallen short of God's glory. And that we are all saved by grace alone. I am in that camp. But does grace mean that because we've accepted all of Jesus' sacrifice that we now have the freedom to trample on God's grace? Because I'm covered and forgiven that it just doesn't matter anymore what is right and wrong. We'll do our best, but if... You know, if someone just happens to suddenly become gay, well, you know, that's their struggle, and that's cool. Really? Are there no standards by which a follower of Jesus Christ must at least attempt to walk and live? Or do we just have to accept that we're sinners and, oh, well, that's just the way it is? I'll tell you what, if we ever arrive at that point that I fear so many, even in the church, have arrived at, that we're sinners, so we might as well just tolerate everybody, then we might as well throw the Bible out and throw everything out and just say, just give me a little peace sign on a t-shirt and I'll just go about loving people. Isn't there something we are supposed to do? that we're call- Aren't we called to holiness? Now, I could ramble on and on, but let me give you some verses that I think will help. And I was so thankful to have Psalm 37, which I know we haven't even looked at yet. I was so thankful to open up to this psalm this week. But 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. I'm a Christian, but this is my lifestyle. John would say, you're lying. 
You can't be both. It's one or the other. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're living in this lifestyle. You cannot do both simultaneously. John wrote in 1 John 2.29, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. And that's the key word. And I think I've shared this with you before. The key word is practices. Poieo in the Greek. Practices. It means a custom or a lifestyle. That my custom is righteousness. That my lifestyle is righteousness. It doesn't mean I'm not going to sin. It doesn't mean I'm not going to blow it. But it means that my lifestyle choice is to try to live righteously. I'm going to practice righteousness. Like I practice the guitar... I'm going to practice righteousness. I'm going to do righteous things. I'm going to try to live righteously. And I've got a choice. I could do that or I could choose another path. Now I understand Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And verse 24 Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We don't save ourselves. His grace does. But to practice sin which is to Choose a custom or a lifestyle choice denies redemption. And that, by the way, is the difference between homosexuality, or let me just broaden it. That's the difference between a choice to live in sexual immorality. I mean, how would it be if I said, okay, you're gay, I'm going to accept that. I just like to sleep around. It's just the way I am. That's my orientation. You know, I never like just one type of cereal. I need it all. (laughs) And so that's my orientation. But I believe in Jesus. So you've got to accept me. To practice sin denies redemption. I didn't say sinning denies redemption. Because we are all sinners and we all fall short of God's glory. But to practice it, to live it out, to choose it as a lifestyle. You might say, Rick, you're starting to sound pretty harsh here. Listen, 1 John 3.9 No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. Stay with the context. He cannot practice. He cannot live that sin lifestyle because he's born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. Now it's not my place to judge Jennifer Knapp. Thankfully it's not my place really to judge anybody. She's going to have to square her behavior with God. But I know this to be true. We all have a choice. We can either practice righteousness, which is a lifestyle of seeking to be right with God, or we can practice selfishness, which truly is the opposite of righteousness. Selfishness, which is I'm going to choose a lifestyle that fulfills my desires. I want to do what is best for me, what feels right for me. I don't care if it's in conflict with what he says. Oh, I love him, but I'm going to do what's right for me. That's practicing sin, practicing selfishness, as opposed to practicing righteousness, which is saying, I want to do everything he says. Not because I think it's going to save me, but because I want to please him, because I want to be more like him, because I want to be better at living a lifestyle that is righteous. So how do I respond to a world that is intolerant of those who attempt to practice righteousness? How do I live in that kind of world that then, on the other hand, tolerates and exalts wickedness? 
And again, you might say, Rick, wickedness seems an awfully harsh word to apply to someone who's just chosen to be gay. Some might say, I know some very kind, generous, altruistic homosexuals. I know some gay people who are good people. How can you call them wicked? The word wicked in Hebrew is rasha, and it simply means violating a standard. It doesn't mean any, you know, a homosexual person is no more inherently evil than I am. But we enter into wickedness when we violate God's standards. When we say, I'm going to live this way, and I know God's standards are over here, but I'm doing this. That's wickedness. It's just what the word is, gang. And I tell you that because we're going to see the word a lot here in Psalm 37. To be wicked is to look at what God has declared, whatever it might be, and intentionally choose to go against it. It's going your way instead of going God's way. Psalm 37 stands as a great encouragement to all those who would choose to practice righteousness. Check it out, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. Boy, that, just that first line, I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> thanks God. Do not fret because of evildoers. <sighs> Alright, okay, good, I cannot fret anymore. Of course, I fretted a little more today, but I know I don't have to. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. And your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. And wait patiently, or literally longingly for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Oh, there's so much peace in those first seven verses. You know, don't fret. Don't worry. Don't stress about it. If you've been having a hard week, feeling like you're under attack from the enemy, God would say, chill out. I got it. Don't fret. All the wickedness that can weigh so heavily on our hearts will evaporate. It'll fade like the grass that dies. Like my front lawn. Those opening verses provide for us a powerful pattern for fret-free living. And your homework assignment, if you'd like one this week, is to meditate on those seven verses. And come back Sunday morning, because we're going to look at them a lot more closely and walk through them and consider them together, Lord willing, and the saints don't rise. But in verse 8, we begin to see the emergence of a great contrast here between those who would practice righteousness and those who would practice wickedness. Cease from anger, verse 8, and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evil doers will be cut off. And those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. The wicked and the righteous. The wicked will be cut off. The righteous, he says, will inherit the land. He says it five times in this psalm. The righteous will inherit the land, he says in verse 9. The humble will inherit the land, he says in verse 11. Over in verse 22, those blessed by him will inherit the land. He says down in verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land. 
And finally in verse 34 he says again, He will exalt you to inherit the land. Jesus said, quoting partially from this psalm, Matthew 5.5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The gentle? The gentle are not stressed out. The gentle are not freaked out or fretful or afraid over the way things are. The gentle, the meek. By the way, meekness, that was, that was the word that Jesus used to describe His own character. I am meek. And to be meek, to be gentle, you're not someone who's stressed out. And you will inherit the earth. It's amazing. There's power in gentleness, isn't there? In, in meekness. The person who doesn't get worked up. There is strength that's cultivated by trusting and delighting and committing and resting in the Lord, which we can do. Because, listen, we know our inheritance. We can be gentle because we know what our inheritance is. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. And I'm not sure, I don't know if this inheritance, if he's talking specifically about the millennial kingdom. I know Revelation tells us in chapter 1, 5, and 20 that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus in that kingdom. So perhaps we'll inherit the earth. Maybe that's the inheritance. Perhaps he's talking about the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Where our actual zip code as believers is New Jerusalem. That's going to be hometown. (laughs) And when you know that, gentleness is not such a stretch. This is not just a promise for the Jewish people as, as David shares this five times in the psalm. It's a promise declared for those who choose to practice righteousness. You'll inherit the earth. David says, I guarantee it. God says, I promise you. You have a great inheritance here. But our inheritance is not now. It's it's not the immediate. So don't fret or worry about this life. This is not our inheritance. We're looking for a better country. Hebrews 11.16 tells us a heavenly one. Verse 10, Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look for his place and he will not be there. The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth, gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. We saw this laughter of the Lord back in Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God's not sitting up there making fun of the wicked, it's a laughter of incredulity. In other words, it's just unbelievable that people actually think that they can overcome God. That those who act wickedly think they actually have the upper hand against the Creator. That somehow we're going to win out our camp. It is mind-boggling to think that at the tail end of the Millennial Kingdom there will be an uprising against the Lord. Unbelievable. And God laughs. Are you serious? You believe that? It's as though the Lord is scratching His head saying, I have told you over and over clearly what's coming. I have seen it and you stubbornly refuse to believe it. It's it's amazing. Verse 14. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. And who would know that better than David? 
that the very weapons and devices of those who practice wickedness will be turned against them. And David knows this. You remember the story. Personal experience. Decades earlier, he goes up against Goliath. He goes into that little ravine there, picks up the five smooth stones. Goliath's there and David cries out with a giant faith. He says in 1 Samuel 17, 46, This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. He had five smooth stones. How do you remove a head with five smooth stones? How do you do that? Maybe if I throw all five really hard, his head will just come off. But David knew. He didn't need to fight Goliath with a sword. All he needed was for Goliath to go down. And the Bible tells us, you know the story, stone number one sank into the giant's forehead. Boonk. Down he goes. The Bible doesn't tell us he died there. It tells us the stone sank into his forehead and he fell over. He's knocked out. David runs over, pulls Goliath's sword out of the sheath and cuts off his head. He uses his enemy's weapon against him. Goliath's sword killed Goliath. And if you choose wickedness, what David's saying is, you'll lose your head by your own device. Your own weapons, what you try to turn against those who are just doing good, that's going to turn around and it's going to be used against you. Verse 16, Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. Love this verse, 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. What is it that makes for a good life? I mean, is it really a corona with a little umbrella sticking out of it on a tropical beach? Is that the good life? Gulls crying overhead. Seen that, seen that commercial? You know, you don't see the people. All you see is kind of their, their arms there and they're in the lounge chairs and a little table and there's a corona in the ocean. Come, drink, and have peace. <laughs> Stupid, you know? From all the ads and the commercials that inundate us, you'd think it was material things that make us happy. The truth is, and David nails it, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. And the truth is, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. So if you have just a little, praise the Lord. You don't have much to be concerned with. We have too many computers in our house. Just, it's just kind of snowballed. And guess who the computer repair guy is? <laughs> guess who knows nothing about repairing computers? <laughs> and it freaks me out. Dad, I can't get online. I don't know why. I want to downsize. I'm, you know, Hannah, take your computer with you to college. I want Corey to take his. That's two down. Three to go. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Godliness is a means of great game when accompanied by contentment. We brought nothing into the world. We can take We cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Righteousness makes for the good life. Doing good, living holy, choosing to follow the the commands of the Lord makes for a good life. 
All the other stuff is just window dressing and it won't get you where you want to be. That is in a life of joy and peace and prosperity of heart and mind. It also, by the way, makes for a generous life. If you skip down and look at verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. And I'm thinking maybe David gave someone that didn't pay him back. (laughs) That guy's wicked. But it's, it's so true. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. Why? Because to the wicked person, their money is their money. But to the righteous person, it's not my money. It's God's money. It's not mine. You need some? Sure, here you go. Because God gave this to me. And so I figure if He needs you to have it, here you go. And He'll take care of what I need. It's His. It's, it's His. I don't have to be concerned about it. To the righteous person, it's God's money to give as He sees fit. Back in verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. As in the days of famine, they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Now this is intriguing. These few verses right here, 18 through 20. The Hebrew word for blameless in verse 18 is tamim. And I want you to note this. What is translated blameless here, tamim, is the word spotless. Spotless. It's the same word used to describe the Passover lamb. That he must be tamim. Exodus 12.5 It shall be an unblemished, a tamim, a spotless male a year old. That's the Passover lamb. And here David says, the Lord knows the days of the tamim, of the spotless. And their inheritance will be forever. But in verse 20, he says this, the wicked will perish and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. Literally, the glory of the pastures, that phrase is the fat of the lambs. Now, do you see what he's saying here? The Tamim, the Lord gives them an inheritance, but the wicked will be like the fat of the lambs. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. What is he saying? What is the glory of the pasture that vanishes like smoke? Sacrificial lambs. David says the wicked is going to be like a sacrificial lamb. Put him on the altar, he burns up, he vanishes away, he's gone. That's a picture. David says, of the wicked. In other words, the wicked will be like that which is burned up in sacrifice, and you can either be a lamb of your own sacrifice, burned up into vanishing smoke, or you can be like, you can be, Tamim, a spotless one. How do I become a spotless one? By Jesus, the ultimate Tamim, the spotless one, becoming the lamb who takes my place. The wicked take their own place. The wicked say, I'm going to live out my life and I will accept whatever judgment I deserve. Stupid. The righteous say, I don't want what I deserve. That's why I trust in Jesus. Because He took what I deserve. He is the Passover lamb. He's the Tamim who makes me Tamim. But the wicked is like the fat of the lamb who will go right on that altar and be fried. 1 Peter 1.9 tells us you were bought with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.14, Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Verse 21, 
Again, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. The righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by Him will inherit the land. Those cursed by Him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and He delights in His way. And by the way, the He and the His there in that last line of verse 23, you can capitalize it any way you want. It works. Okay? Either He, God, delights in His way, man's way, the righteous way, or He, man, delights in His way, God's way, or He, the righteous man, delights in He, His own way, the righteous man's way, because it's good, or He... (laughs) Are you with me? He, God delights in God's way. So it's either, it can work. There were no capitals when David wrote this. It was just words. And so it works both ways. I thought that was cool. Maybe just think, Rick's out there. Verse 24. When he falls headlong, or when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, talking about the righteous, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. And here again is the example of the practice of righteousness compared to the practice of wickedness. The righteous will fall. You are going to stumble. You are going to sin. It's in that old sin nature. But when you fall, you will not be hurled headlong. You'll be like Peter on the water. You'll sink and God will grab you. Those who practice righteousness. Those who live by the grace of God. I'm going to sin, but He's going to catch me. Because I have chosen His grace. And I walk in His righteousness. The wicked, on the other hand, are those who are out there practicing headlong hurls. I'm cliff diving where there is no water. That is the practice of wickedness. I remember as kids, stuntman diving in our swimming pool. Lived in Southern California. Everybody has a pool. It's not that big a deal. And we would dive off the diving board and, and act like we'd been shot in midair. You know, this old cowboy stuff. Oh, you know, we'd fall and crash into the water. And then we got a little more brave and climbed up on the pylons on our fence. You know, about seven feet above the water. We'd jump off that. Ah, we'd crash into the water. We, we practiced this whole stuntman thing. I don't know, in case we were ever shot, we'd know how to fall down or something. And that's what the wicked are doing. They're practicing their own demise. They're practicing falling down with no one to catch them. Verse 25. David says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen, I love this, I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his descendants are a blessing. This is absolutely huge. David says, look, here I am in my old age. I look back over life and I have not ever seen the righteous begging for bread. And you know what? Come to think of it, neither have I. I I haven't. People who are choosing to walk and live in righteousness. And I've heard the righteous say many times, I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. I said it myself. But God always sees the righteous through. Even when we can't see how. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 13.5, Make sure that your character is free of the love of money. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, The Lord's my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Listen, that verse, 
I will not forsake you, I will not desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, is in the context of finance. God's saying, I'm not going to forget about your needs. Be content with what you have. Don't fret, don't stress over money. I got it. Do you trust me? He says. Do you believe me? Verse 27. Depart from evil. And do good so that you will abide not just today, not just tomorrow, not just for the next few months or years, so that you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it, the third time he says this, forever. You know what the Hebrew word forever means? Forever. (laughs) Why will the descendants of the wicked be cut off, however? He says the descendants of the wicked, they're going to be cut off too. Why? Because the descendants of the wicked will watch what mom and dad practice. And they will learn from it. And in many cases, they will continue to practice the same thing. But it's not predetermined. And it's not God saying, hey, sins of the Father, I'm going to punish the the next generation for. Well, didn't He say something like that? Exodus 20, verse 5. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. On the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Listen, we've talked about this verse many times. The Lord is not saying He's going to condemn every to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him. He's saying He will visit them. I'm going to visit. If your father sins, guess what? I'm coming in your generation. I'm going to see what you're doing. Have you chosen me? I'm going to visit. That's the grace of God. I'm going to visit every generation and every individual. Ezekiel, I believe, 15. He says, the soul that sins will die. The father is responsible for his sin. The son is responsible for his sin. I will visit every generation to see. And you know what that tells me? Grandmas, grandpas, aunts, and uncles, you have a huge role in the lives of your grandkids or nieces and nephews. If you have people in your family that are practicing wickedness, you have a role to practice righteousness before those kids. That they can see the difference and have the opportunity to choose Jesus, to choose grace. Show them Jesus. Verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. And his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. What is their problem anyway? What's up with the wicked going after the righteous? Isn't that ironic that... Those who would choose a sin lifestyle are the first ones to tell you to stop judging them. You Christians. Judgmental, hypocritical bigots. Didn't you just judge me when you said that? Wasn't that kind of a hypocritical thing for you to say? It's incredible to me why the wicked go after the righteous. Ironic that you can be wicked and call names and it's okay, but if you're righteous and you speak truth, 
Well, then that's judgmental. Why does the non-believer even care what the believer thinks? I mean, if it's really live and let live, why not even say anything about it? You do your church thing, I'll do my wickedness thing, we're all good. It's because of conviction. It's because if you choose to practice righteousness, people are going to be convicted by your choice. You go out to a movie with another couple, and you're offended, and you go, guys, we got to leave. And you walk out, and they're sitting there going... Guess we're going to have to pay for this one one more time, hon. You know, we're going to have to come back again. And it makes them uncomfortable. You're sitting with a group of people and the drinks are going around and around and around. You're just... No thanks. Conviction makes them uncomfortable. And that's why the wicked, I'm convinced, go after the righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, an aroma from death to death. And to the other, an aroma from life to life. You know when you run into another Christian, how it's just kind of cool. Oh, you believe in Jesus? Cool, life. But when someone who doesn't believe runs into a Christian, oh, you're a Christian? Okay. Great. Verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. And He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man, David writes in his old age. I have seen it. A wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. And then he passed away. And lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Too true. History's where are they now file is packed full of nameless, faceless, forgotten people whose lives were marked by wickedness. How many of you, let me just do a quick survey. How many people in here know who Nasser is or was? Raise your hands. Gamil Abdul Nasser. Okay, a few. A lot of you don't know who he was. He was president of Egypt in the glory days of Egypt, in, in the modern Egypt, in the run up to the Six Day War. He was dashing. He was the kind of guy who when his face was on Time Magazine or whatever, women the world around went, Oh, Nasser. You know? He, he was just this uh, charismatic leader. Man, he could whip up the people of Egypt. And then he decided we're going to take out Israel. Three years later, he died of a heart attack. Three years after the war that was horribly lost by Egypt. He dies of a heart attack. Where is he now? Who's talking about Nasser now? Who's swooning over pictures of Nasser these days? The truth is, David gets it right. The wicked passes away. Lo, he's no more. I saw from him. He could not be found. Now, you might say, well, I can think of a few. I, I know of some wicked who have passed away and this, the sting of their wickedness is s- still around. You know, the reality is, as time goes by, when the wicked pass out of sight, even the sting of what they've done it goes away too. Let me encourage you in your life if you've dealt with a person who has brought great harm to you and even the image of them in your head is still hard to even think about, it's going to pass. It's going to go away. Even in the worst of circumstances, that person that you just, they just tore you up and you're not sure how you're going to get through another night of sleep, it goes away. It fades with time. Verse 37, Mark the blameless man. Again, Tamim, spotless. 
And behold, the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity. I think of Jesus, who was promised a posterity. The man of peace. Promised an inheritance. And you are it. Man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will altogether be destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Good old David. You know, he says, I've sinned and I've suffered for it. It made me sick. He says, I realize the brevity of my life, that the Lord was my only hope. He says, don't fret. Just practice righteousness. And I was so discouraged earlier in this week. And it wasn't just the magazine article. It was just, it kicked open the door to the whole flurry of wickedness and what the church is facing and dealing with. And it started to get, you know, emotional about it. And then I sat down with the Lord... I started reading. Do not fret. First three words out of the study. Ricky, don't fret. Practice righteousness. I am your refuge. That's how this one ends. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. I am your refuge. Sarah, God's your refuge. You take your refuge in Him. You practice righteousness. He's your refuge. He's the one. God is our refuge. Our strength, our fortress. John said in 1 John 2.28, Now little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. To practice righteousness is to take refuge in the Lord. Praise God. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the encouragement in a week that I needed it. And I assume probably somebody else did too. And it is so good to know, Father, though we sin and fall short of Your glory, You heal and save. You forgive us. And I pray, Father, we would be bold in the practice of righteousness. That we wouldn't do it to show off or to to be pious or, or religious or anything else. We would just practice righteousness because we want to be spotless like You. Because we want to wear the clothing You've already assigned to us. The clothing of spotlessness and goodness and righteousness. We want to wear, Father, the image that was purchased by Jesus. And may we reject the lifestyle choice of wickedness. May we reject evil in ourselves and in those around us. May we, Father, with love, continue to practice righteousness. With grace, may we be intolerant of the world saying it doesn't matter what you do. May we enter the stronghold of our Savior Jesus Christ, our refuge. In Jesus' name, Amen.